Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. To say happy new year, so glad to be able to be gathered this morning. Um, sorry, looks like a child of mine might have dumped a little bit of juice on my Bible, so that's all right. We'll roll with it. Um, anyways, really glad to be able to be here this morning. I get to kind of open uh, this year's uh, sermon series um, with uh, talking about community. Uh, every year, it's been kind of standard around Covenant to do a series that's really focused on. What is the church? Who are we? How are we formed? And this year, we're going to be taking a look at a sermon that we are titling, Holy Community. Holy means to be set apart. It means to be different. So maybe we might ask ourselves, how is it that the church is different from other types of forms of communities? I mean, we do a lot of the same things that other corporations do, organizations, or other clubs. I mean, we take in revenue, we employ staff, thank you very much. Um, We have a mission, we have objectives, we host events. We do a lot of the same things that other organizations do. And yet, how is it that we are different than other communities, other organizations, other corporations? And one of the things I would propose to you is that we are different because God has given us his law that God has given us his law. He has given us his law that we might fulfill his law, we might live his law, and that that is what sets us apart. That is what distinguishes us. But we can't just straight in take a look at what is the law of God. We must take a look at how was the law given to us. Uh, I don't know if you have like a favorite trilogy. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a Lord of the Rings fan. I know some people like Chronicles of Narnia. Some people are like Star Wars fans or like The Godfather. Uh, but sometimes, occasionally, the second installment of the trilogy is actually better than the first. You know, like with Star Wars, uh, I think the second one is um, Phantom Menace or something like that or Rise of Skywalker. Is that not it? So that's Empire Strikes Back. I knew that. I looked it up because I didn't want to be stupid, but, you know, don't send me your hate mail, all you Star Wars lovers. Um, you know, some of you guys, you're like, man, you know, Empire Strike Rack is fantastic. Godfather 2 is better than the first one. I'm a Lord of the Rings fan. You know, Two Towers was more critically acclaimed than the first one. But if you just straight in start watching Two Towers, you're going to be confused. You're not going to understand exactly what the plot is and this ring and all these different creatures and this fellowship and what they're trying to accomplish together. You've got to watch the Fellowship of the Rings to really understand the origins of the story and the journey that's kind of taking place like over uh, the entire trilogy. And in the same way, we can look at the New Testament church, but the New Testament church has its origin, its foundation in the Old Testament. It's not a separate thing. All right, it actually began in the Old Testament when God began to call the people to himself. And so we're going to take a look at the formation and a significant moment when God was calling the people to himself and just, just before God actually gives his people his law. And so we're going to take a look at how it is that God forms his people and then what is the purpose of the law of God 
for these people to, uh, to live out together. Our big idea this morning is the Lord chose us that we would become holy as he is holy. The Lord chose us, this is a big idea today, that the Lord chose us so that we might become holy as he himself is holy, that we might be set apart as he himself is set apart. And actually says that in the Old Testament, that God calls his people to be holy as he is holy. And so what does that mean? What does it look like? We're going to kind of explore that this morning. Now, as we jump back in time, in history, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 19. Uh, I just, you know, fair warning, we're taking a look at uh, what happened in ancient history. And if you're less familiar with the Christian faith, if you're less familiar with the Old Testament, like that's fine. You know, I'm going to try to explain things as best I can, uh, but there might be some things that like go over your head, and that's okay. It's part of the learning process. And so if you hear some things that are new, some things that like pique your curiosity, write down some questions, jot some notes, send me an email. We'll love to help you like kind of uh, catch you up to speed with what's going on. Uh, the history is significant, though, because it does inform us about Christ and our life in Christ that we have today in the New Testament. So read with me Exodus chapter 19, verse 1 says this, on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So when you hear like the word Israel... As you're reading through the scriptures, just kind of put an equal sign in your mind and say, God's people. Whenever you hear House of Jacob, Israel, and the Old Testament, those were God's people. These are God's chosen uh, people. And so God has called them into the wilderness, into the middle of nowhere, to the base of this mount, Mount Sinai. And God is about ready to do something. So as we read, they just came from Egypt. Prior to this moment, Israel, God's people, were enslaved to Egyptians. They lived under Egyptian rule. That the Egyptians built their buildings, built their pyramids partially on the slave labor of Israel. They were an oppressed people. And God, we'll get into this, God miraculously delivers them out of bondage from Egypt, brings them out into the wilderness. So he didn't bring them out into like plentiful land where they can begin to like plant crops. That's coming in the future. Right now, they're in the wilderness so that God might kind of download to them how he wants them to be, how they are going to be formed. And he's going to give them the law. What we need to understand is that the law, the law of God is woven into this covenant that he's forming with his people. The relationship that he's establishing, that it's woven into how it is that he forms his very people. So at this moment in time right here, they're at Mount Sinai, right? This is 50 days after they came from Egypt. And from this point, and if you continue reading through the rest of Exodus, through Leviticus, into early Numbers, all that time, 
is about 11 months long that God is going to kind of impart his law to his people. And there's three parts to this law. The first part of the law is God's moral law, how it is that Israel is to live, particularly towards God and towards one another. It's summed up by Jesus in the New Testament that we are to love God with our everything and we're to love our neighbor as ourself. Okay, that's God's moral law. How do we treat one another? There's also God's civil law that's part of this. How is it that Israel was going to uh, function as a nation? How are they going to police themselves? How are they going to conduct themselves in civil law? How are people going to have rights? And how would those rights be established? And how would there be a justice amongst them? So there's God's civil law that he uh, also imparts to them. And thirdly, there's the religious law. How is it that Israel is going to be connected in worshiping their God? How would they cleanse themselves? How is it that they were to approach God? What is it that they were to remember about God? How would they be established with their religious spiritual life together? So those are the three parts of God's law that he's going to, after this chapter, he's going to begin to give to them, expecting them to fulfill it. What is important for us to understand is that the law isn't like an appendix. It's not like an add-on. It's not like an an additional layer. It's not just a bunch of like good principles that God was like, hey, I saved you, and now, you know, if you want to live a good life, try these things out. No, the law was given with the expectation that they would be fulfilled and kept by his people because the law is actually woven into the very fabric of the relationship that he was establishing with his people. It's part of it. The law is part of their salvation. Um. So how do you understand this? Well, you know, we can say this. The covenant, of, which is one of grace, the covenant that God gives is one of grace, but it's that grace covenant that actually is meant to set them apart. When we say it's a covenant of grace, what we mean is, is that Israel, they, God unconditionally gives, gives them his, uh, his relationship. He unconditionally gives them like salvation, Okay, they didn't earn it, as we're going to see here. We're going to take a look at this. They didn't earn it. But it's that very covenant that as they receive it, it's, it was meant to set them apart, to be his people. We might think for a moment, like as we kind of see this interplay of like God's on top of the mountain, he's speaking down to his people, kind of like a little bit of like the scene from Romeo and Juliet. You know, of Juliet on the top of the balcony and Romeo's like down below in the garden and they see all this nice, flowery, leafy things to one another. It makes teenage boys gag a little bit and, you know, throw up in their mouth and, you know, the girls swoon. Um, but what are they doing? Juliet and Romeo are calling to one another and they're saying, hey, we are breaking apart from our family of origin and we're committing ourselves to you in this lovely language where they declare their love for one another and their loyalty to one another and their commitment to one another from that point that point forward and forevermore. In the same way, we have God, the God of the universe, coming down on this mountain and declaring to his people, I am here, I choose you, and God has now brought his people to themselves, separated them, that he's now going to call them into relationship with himself. And this relationship is really, it, it's formed on three divine realities, works that God does on behalf of his people. The first is that there's divine judgment. Okay, there's divine judgment. Uh, it, it happens throughout 
Scripture that there's these moments of reckoning where humanity has to reckon with the eternal God, the all-good, all-loving God, who's also the God of justice. And we see it in Noah when you read it in Genesis that when God called Noah to make an ark, there was then judgment upon the wickedness of mankind. And when God brought his people Israel out of Egypt, God came and judged the Egyptians as a way of separating his people. God would then come again through his son Jesus. As he called the church in Christ to himself, the judgment fell upon his son Jesus. And the final day of reckoning will be at the end of times when Jesus comes back for us and brings us into our eternal home with him to live for all eternity with one another and with him. There will be another time of wrecking, another time of, of judgment. And the reason that God is talking about this, he says, you remember what I did to the Egyptians. He says it here in the text because he wants Israel to know that when he's about ready to establish them and give them the law, he wants to remind them. God reminds Israel it's not what they did that rescued them, but it's what God gave, that he gave his mercy to them. That Israel didn't do anything in order for them to be chosen, in order for them to be able to be delivered from judgment. It's that God rescued them because of his own mercy. And he's setting them before them. He's reminding them of this before he gives them the law. Because the law isn't going to be about paying God back. It's going to be about, I delivered you for this very moment that I might make you. Right? That I might make you for the very reason that I've made you for. We're going to take a look at that here in a moment. Now, this judgment happened back in, uh, back in Egypt with what is called Passover. If you read through the scriptures, the way that God brought Israel out was that God brought his judgment upon the Egyptians through Passover. And God was going to come. He was going to judge every people, the Egyptians in Israel. And Israel was not to think of themselves differently than the Egyptians. While they might have been slaves, they still were sinful and broken just like the Egyptians. They'd still live the same selfish type, out of the same selfish tendencies that the Egyptians did. And so when God comes to judge, he's going to provide a lamb for them. He's going to provide a lamb that's, that, that, that lamb is going to cover their sin. That lamb paid the cost all right, for them that the Egyptians would themselves have to, have to pay. And it's through this lamb all right, that when the angel of death came, that it passes over the houses of Israel. For those who heard the word of God, those who obeyed it and covered their doorposts with this blood. And so divine judgment comes and God rescues them because of his mercy. We also see here divine choice. So there's divine judgment, divine choice. God chose Israel. God picked his people. He says one chapter later, or sorry, it's recorded one chapter later in Exodus 20. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I chose you. I brought you out. Now, we all want to be chosen, right? I mean, you can see this, I think, most clearly, you know, at the, res uh, at the recess, um, uh, at recess with kids in grade school, right? I mean, like, you get a game of kickball, you've got your two captains, and what happens immediately once you pick your two captains? All the kids stand in a line, and then everyone starts shouting, pick me, pick me, pick me first. I'll be a value to your team. I can kick it far. I can play. Choose me, because nobody wants to be the last kid who's not actually picked. They're just sort of like defaulted to a team. 
Like, unless we want to, like, totally exclude you, all right, yeah, you can, like, come be a part of our team, but you're not actually picked. Everyone wants to be chosen. Everybody wants to be wanted, right? We want someone to see something in us that's redeemable, that's desirable, that's wantable, right? If you're married or you're dating, you know, you want to feel like he or she chose you, and she or he wants to feel like you chose them, that you saw something in them and wanted, uh, wanted that. And what we have to understand here is, is the scripture is really clear that Israel isn't chosen because of anything lovely in them. Over and over and over again, God talks about, God chose them just because. God chose them just because he did. They weren't the most numerous of people. They weren't a heroic people. They weren't a people of great valor or great integrity or character. In fact, it says that God had pity on them. He had pity on them and chose them. Now, that doesn't sit well with us, I think, as humans, because I, I don't want to be married out of pity. You know, I don't want to be friended out of, out of pity. And yet, this unconditional, graceful love is that God saw nothing, nothing lovely in me and yet still chose to love me. And what this means is that I don't have to earn it back. I don't have to keep on validating myself throughout the entirety of my relationship with God as in to show him as I fulfill the law I don't fulfill the law in order that I might continue to be chosen. I am chosen because I was chosen. When God chooses me, he chooses me forever. He chose Israel forever. We also see divine deliverance, divine judgment, divine choice. Lastly, divine deliverance. Beautiful word picture here. I bore you on eagle's wings. God says, I bore you on eagle's wings. If you're Israel and you're at the base of this mountain and you're looking up, to where God is, you're going to see the eagles and the hawks flying above, right? You see the adult mother, father hawks who are strong as they can sail. And you see babies who, you know, are learning to fly, who aren't as true in their flight, who struggle as they're trying to learn how to become stronger. What God doesn't say is, hey, you know, you were in my tailwind coming out of Egypt. God says, no, I bore you on my own wings out of Egypt. Because I delivered you. There's divine deliverance. You didn't do anything. I supplied the lamb for you. That lamb at Passover is one that covered your sins. Because you were one of, of the Egyptians as well. But I delivered you. I parted the Red Seas. I brought you safely through dry ground. In the wilderness where there's no crops, no vegetation, I provided manna and food and water for you. It is God from beginning to end who is delivering his people. And so this covenant of grace, this covenant of grace sets us apart because we have to recognize that we are not our own. That what God is saying is I delivered you from slavery, from bondage, and you no longer belong to the Egyptians, nor do you belong to yourselves. You belong to me. You're my treasured possession. We are not our own. We aren't our own. And that doesn't sit very well with us. I think as Americans, we like to want to be independent and individuals. We want to feel like we can self-actualize on our own. We don't want to have the bondage or accountability or the responsibilities of relationship. We're going to get that to hear that in a minute, but that's the fact of the matter. If we are counted saved as one of God's children, it's because God delivered us and our life is no longer our own. We now belong to a good and loving Father. And we're now in that relationship. So that's why we can say, hey, the Lord chose us. Okay, the Lord chose us 
because we're not our own, we now are then to become holy as he is holy. We are to, to reflect who he is to the world. That's his purpose for us. Well, the law, right, the law is built into this relationship, this covenant. This covenant is of grace. It's not of works. It is of grace. But the law is also an expression of grace. It, it is the fulfillment of grace. It's the outworking of grace. And that's when we get into kind of this text, verses 4 through 6, <clears throat> that we see that the law is the actual true expression of real divine grace and love. Now, we might feel caught off guard because verse 5, you know, for some of us, based on like what maybe your church background is or what you've heard, it can, you know, maybe it feels a little challenging when you think of grace theology, maybe of, of what you've been taught. It says, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And now maybe you might feel like there's a little bit of a bait and switch. God, you saved us, and now all of a sudden there's an if-then. That I'm only your treasured possession if I obey your, your voice? What if I choose not to obey it, you know? How, what do we make of this if-then statement? And we'll, we'll make something of it here in a moment, but let me kind of go over a couple of misunderstandings. Misunderstanding number one is that we aren't saved by works. We're not saved by the law. We're not saved by keeping the law. This is not, you will be delivered if you obey my commands. Because what did he just get done saying? He said, I brought you out of Egypt. I bore you on my wings. I've already delivered you. You're not saved because of works. And the New Testament affirms this when Paul speaks of this in Romans 3 that all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God, and yet it is a gift of Jesus that we are justified from our sins. It is a gift. You don't pay for a gift, you receive a gift. So salvation by works is not what God is saying through Moses to his people. It's also not this. It's not also, hey, yeah, you're not saved by works, but there is a works component to your salvation. It's kind of two pieces of the same puzzle. You know, you're saved by faith, and works. It's both and. And some have taught this. Some have taught this. God brings his part. He does part of the delivering. We have faith in God's work, but then we've also got to do our part too in order to become saved. And that's not true either. Our works are not part of our salvation. It's not the way we get delivered. We're delivered because of God's grace and God's mercy and God's might. In fact, from 19, if you just were to kind of continue to reading over the next couple of chapters, at the same base camp, at the same mountain, when God is speaking to his people, Israel begins to worship golden cows. Kid you not. They begin to worship golden cows. But a couple moments later, as God is giving his law to his people, as God has delivered them, this is how unfaithful we are. You see, if it was based in any part, their salvation, any part, on their own works, God would have disowned them at that moment that they broke his law. But they broke it, and he stuck with them. And we watch him throughout the scriptures stick with his people because they're his people, and he wants to form them into this holy community. In the same way for us, same way for us, God doesn't give up on us when we fail the law, when we fail what God has called us to be and to do. Once we're delivered, we're always his possession, we're always his treasure possession. So salvation is not a faith and works idea, okay? But it's also third misunderstanding. It's not this either. It's not saved by faith and good works 
are just kind of an added bonus. Good works don't really matter, and that has certainly been taught as well. Jesus saved you, and now you and God are good. You can kind of go and do whatever you want, because the scriptures do not speak to that either, and that's why if we have that kind of thought that I'm saved by faith and works are kind of an added bonus sort of thing, we come to this and we're confused. We feel caught off guard. We feel like we, you know, we bit that line, that bait, and now God is reeling us in. If we understand true relationship, true relationship doesn't work as if we come into and receive the love of someone and then we just get to kind of do whatever we want. It ignores the fact that over and over and over in Scripture, God calls people to fulfill his law. God calls people to fulfill his law. Jesus said he came in order to fulfill the law. In John 15, Jesus says, if you're my friends, you will keep my commandments. Meaning if we're friends of God, will obey his commands. And so it's not detached. The law is built into our relationship with God. Our fourth misunderstanding is this. This too has been taught. That the law of God is in the Old Testament, but now we're people of the Holy Spirit. We're people of the Spirit. I don't know if you've heard that before. Generally speaking, when people say we're people of the Spirit, we no longer are bound to the law. What they're really saying is I can kind of just do whatever I feel like doing. Because the Spirit is mysterious and, you know, I can feel kind of led by the Spirit. Some have said, hey, <clears throat> I don't have to fulfill the law of God. I'm being led by the Spirit. And then they go on and do things that are very black and white, contradictory to the law of God. Or they choose to ignore certain parts of the law because they're uncomfortable or they don't want to fulfill them because they're guided by the Spirit. The Spirit life in the Old Testament Israel life are not two detached realities. The spirit life is a continuation of the Old Testament church reality. In fact, the spirit was given that we might, through his empowerment, keep the law of Christ. We might keep the law of love. We might fulfill it. The spirit was given, not that I can then just go do whatever I want or be guided into whatever I want. It actually, the spirit comes to teach me God's law and then empower me to fulfill it. Not just me, but also with you and together. There's this great uh, movie called Saving Private Ryan. I don't know if you've seen it before. It's, it's one of my favorite. Actually, I took a, a girl to, um, to go watch this back in like the mid-90s, 94, 90, sorry, 96, 97, something like that. It's not a great date movie because it's about World War II and there's lots of blood and killing. Um, but it's a great movie if you want to see some of that stuff. Um, and I did. And uh, the, the premise of the movie, which, you know, when I was a 16-year-old, I really wanted to see the war stuff. But the older I've gotten, the more I've appreciated the narrative that's interwoven into the Saving Private Ryan movie. The premise of the story is that Private Ryan, Private Ryan has three other brothers who are fighting in World War II with him, and all three die. And it be, the army becomes aware, right, the higher-ups of the army become aware that in this family with four brothers, the only kids that this family has, Three have passed away, and there's only one left. And the army can't bear to send another, like, person to this mother and father saying, you've lost all of your offspring in this horrendous war. And so the army sets out to go and search and find for Ryan, who's, like, finding a needle in the haystack, in order to bring him home to his family. And they pick eight uh, army rangers, whose mission now in the midst of this war is to go and not fight the enemy, 
but to go and find Ryan and to save him. And as they're trying to find Ryan, they're trying to just figure out the matrix of where he might have landed, where he is, or they're having to go through any territory, they're having to battle and fight these battles uh, as they're going along. They're getting wounded, they're losing their lives, and they begin to rightly ask themselves, why should our mission be to save this guy? What has he done that's so special? Is he a hero? Is he going to go on and discover the cure to some, you know, communicable horrendous disease? Why should we give our lives up for this guy? And kind of the thrust of the narrative is, you know, as they find Ryan, and as Ryan is rescued because these men really lay their life down for him, well, then what's that to Ryan? Is he now free to do whatever he wants, or does he owe them something? Has their sacrificial payment for him meant that Ryan now is to live differently? Jesus came to save us from our sins. He gave himself for us. And so now we live in that reality, that relationship. And I want us to understand this, because next week we're going to turn the page. We're going to look at how is it that we fulfill the law by how we treat one another. We're going to look at that very practically next week and throughout the year. But before we get super practical, I want us to understand why it is that we're bound to keep this law. One, an implication of God's law, God's giving the law, is that our position in Christ, to be in Christ, is firmly fixed as a child of God. That if we're in Christ, we are always his children, and we will never cease to not be his children. The law is not a path in order to keep your relationship with God. It's not, the law is not a way of keeping yourself in the covenant with God. Once you're a child, you're always a child. John 1.12 says, you know, if you receive Jesus, you will then become a child of God. And if any of us are parents, if you know what it's like to be a parent, you know that your child is always your child. Even if your child runs away from you, even if your child abandons you, even if they cut off communication with you, they will always be your child. When the child reaches out to you, you will respond because they're your child forever. They're always your son and always your daughter. And how much more... If we as people have that bond towards one another, how much more a holy, perfect God has that same bond and commitment and loyalty to his own people? Our position as his children is firmly fixed based on his own deliverance. Israel, they were his treasured possession. His treasured possession. Let us hear that this morning. We are his treasured possession. But another reality of this is that we have to embrace the fact that every relationship has its own responsibilities. If you're an employer and you hire someone onto your staff, they have responsibilities to you and you have responsibilities to them. If you're dating someone, you know, you have responsibilities to one another. If you have a friend, right, and you tell a secret to a friend, that friend has a responsibility to you. The friend code, if you go and share that secret about your friend with someone else, you're breaking the friend code, right? You might lose that relationship. So every responsibility, uh, relationship has its own responsibilities that The gospel is not spiritual nirvana. The gospel is not spiritual nirvana. And I think in our culture, we want to prop up spiritual nirvana. Spiritual nirvana is that we can somehow find freedom from the guilt and shame uh, that we incur in this life for the things that we've done and others have done towards us. And that somehow, 
if we just kind of come to God and believe in his salvation, then we won't have to feel bad about the things that we do, nor will we have to feel like we're obligated to other people or to him. We'll now be free to choose and pursue whatever we desire to do. If we want to be good, we'll be good. But we'll also find pleasure in this life, and we're going to uh, pursue those things that most pleasure us. But that's, that's not what the relationship is. It's not, the gospel is not a spiritual nirvana. The gospel is an intimate, binding covenant with the God of the universe. It's a binding covenant with the God of the universe who delivered you and brought you into a relationship with himself. There's a young daughter who was uh, beginning to be courted by a man who was in the military. And right before their first date, uh, her dad was a military man himself, and he kind of knew the mind of a military man. He didn't trust it very much. And so he decided to take his daughter out to breakfast the morning before her first date. And so they go out to breakfast, and dad is sitting down with his daughter, and they're having a wonderful time. And he just says, I want to tell you, I just want to express to you that your mom and I, we love you and we trust you. And we know that tonight you won't do anything to disappoint us. You won't do anything tonight to disappoint us. I mean, how does that sit? Does it feel maybe slightly manipulative that maybe the dad is trying to coerce his daughter and not making bad decisions tonight with this guy, you know, maybe not getting caught up in the heat of the moment? But the dad is right to call on his own love relationship with his daughter and say, while you go off with this man, you're also still in relationship with us. And the things that you will do tonight reflect upon your mother and I. They either bring us honor or they bring us shame. We don't like that in America because we want spiritual nirvana. We want to not be responsible for other people because we want to do what we want to do. But true relationship, true intimacy, true love, is that we're bound together, right? We're bound together with God. They, we are not our own, that we are his children, and we have responsibilities towards him as our heavenly father. So reality number one, our position is fixed in Christ. Reality number two, every relationship has responsibilities. Reality number three, God's law is not a, one of abstinence. It's not about do not, but it's a, it, the law is about living into a better reality. God's law is a good law. When you read through the Psalms over and over again, there are psalm songs where God's people wrote this beautiful poetry talking about the beauty of God's law, talking about, about the, how the, the law light, lights their path of how to live a good life, that it's like being planted. If you fulfill and know and meditate on God's law, it's like being a tree planted by a river. You're always being sustained by the resources of God through his law. They saw the law as a beautiful thing. Moses was not communicating to them, hey, keep God's law and then, or sorry, God through Moses wasn't communicating, hey, keep my law and then I'm going to make you something that you're not. Rather, God was saying, keep my law and you will become what I made you for. You are my treasured possession. You are a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of priests who are to display my love to a lost and broken world. You are a holy nation, a set-apart nation, a people who are mine, and I am yours. In that movie, Saving Private Ryan, it ends. One of the final scenes, I should say, is this. is Tom Hanks uh, is one of the men who is losing his life having just taken bullets for Ryan. Whispers in Ryan's ear, make it count. Make it count. What he's saying was, Ryan, 
make your life count. These men gave their life that you would have yours. So don't just live for yourself. Live for something more. In the same way, the gospel calls us to make our life count. Jesus delivered us. He saved us from the bondage of our sin, of our brokenness. And now we make it count by learning and leaning into his law, seeking together to fulfill it, to keep it, to teach one another how to do it, locking arms and fulfilling it together. And we're going to take, starting next week, a look at what does it look like to keep God's law amongst one another. Our big idea this morning, the Lord chose us that we would become holy as he is holy. And this is a great and awesome and beautiful call and privilege that we have. Would you pray with me? Father God, as we start 2021, as we turn the page, God, and we look out ahead at what this year has for us, God, we're not alone as we think about our year. We're not by ourselves making our own choices, but God, we are a part of a community, a holy family, and that God, just as we might have aspirations for our own life, you have aspirations for our family, that we would lean into loving one another, we would lean into and take seriously that our salvation is about loving each other, about laying our lives down just as you laid your life down for us. And so Lord, between now and next week, would you soften our heart, would you open our ears that we would hear your word and we would lean into how it is that we might be a set-apart people, a holy community for you. We ask this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon, every Sunday, in person or online. Thanks for listening.